0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Anyone who has witnessed a wedding knows that the day is meant to be filled with joy and laughter. It is meant to be a celebration of Christ uniting a man and a woman into a lifelong marriage. It is an incredible institution that God himself established in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and continues to work through to this day. Everything that God established in the Garden was intended for good. But again, because of the disruption of our pride, sin caused things in our lives not to be filled with laughter and joy, as God intended all things for us to have. Instead, we experience something not as inviting. Wedding crashes. I'm not as familiar with the wedding stories you all have, though I have heard a few of them in my short time at Emmanuel. But in every wedding celebration, there is always some kind of a hiccup. Snowstorms, rainstorms, tornadoes. The flowers were not delivered until after the ceremony. Someone forgot the cake. The pastor got sick. The bride or the groom were injured. Someone's friend partied too hard the night before and had to spend the night in the hospital. A bridesmaid forgot her dress. The mother-in-law, for some odd reason, decided to wear white. The marriage certificate wasn't ordered in time. And the list is never-ending. But even after the wedding is done, there are many other marriage crashers that Satan loves to send in order to break what God intended for good. Lying, cheating, laziness, financial struggle, or maybe even financial greed, heartache, depression, pride, death of a child. And ultimately, if your marriage survives all of that, Satan still wins by the death of a spouse. He is the ultimate wedding crasher. In our Gospel reading today, we learn about a bridegroom that would never allow his marriage to fail. He protected his wedding day at all costs so that there would be no disruption and there would be no wedding crashers. First, the bridegroom who is in this parable is Jesus, invites guests to his wedding, his everlasting feast in his kingdom. These guests, Jesus implies in the parable, are the Jews. He sent his disciples out to preach the gospel of repentance while he worked miracles in all of Israel and taught with the authority to forgive sins, showing that he is God, the promised Messiah. And even though he did all of these signs and invited the Pharisees, chief priests, and elders to follow along with him and join the wedding march, they chose to be party poopers. They were envious that Jesus, who they thought was a mere man born in Bethlehem and raised by his earthly carpenter father, Joseph, was gaining all the attraction to himself. They thought that Jesus was the one crushing their party, not the other way around. But even though they were always ignoring the invitation to follow him, Jesus still taught Jesus still worked miracles and sent out his disciples to others to invite them to follow him. The second thing that the bridegroom did in the parable, which may seem a little over the top at first, is that in his anger, he sent out troops to go out and destroy those who denied his invitation and those who murdered his messengers. That sounds like a rather scary bridegroom. It seems odd at first that Jesus, who teaches earlier in Matthew, blessed are the peacemakers, is teaching here that the bridegroom is storming through the town in rampage, destroying those who ignored his invitation. It seems as though killing would be counterintuitive because that would scare away guests or cause less people to come to the wedding. But who are the people the bridegroom sends troops after? They are the people who are crashing his wedding by ignoring his invitation and being soaked into their own life. They are the ones who think that they are too busy to come, maybe even for a realistically good reason. One bought new livestock. Another started a new business. They were too busy to come to church. I mean, the wedding. So why did God destroy these ignorant guests? It's not because he took pleasure in killing. It is because as the bridegroom, he was protecting the people, his bride, his church, who are the people in his third act of the parable he sent out messengers among the rest of the world to invite the good and the bad people, a.k.a. the Gentiles, you and me. We are the people Jesus intended to invite through the disciples at the end of Matthew, where we hear, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, my disciples. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. It is through that baptism and teaching from Christ's authority that we are no longer just as guests invited from the streets, but become his bride included in the feast. Yes, we are the bride he chooses to protect Even though we are ignorant all the time, and though we sin constantly, Jesus loves his bride. He would do literally anything to make sure that his bride meets him at his altar, including laying down his life for hers, which he did on the cross. He is jealous for her. He cannot allow room for any other God into his marriage because he is the one and only that provides for all of her needs. He gives her her shoes, her clothes, her food, and not only that, but gives her a family, a home, a place of peace, refuge from others who want to destroy their marriage. He gives his wedding garment of righteousness away to his bride so that she can be seen as righteous as he is. But if you are not part of the bride, if you ignore his promises and maybe go as far as divorcing yourself from the church, stripping away the wedding garment he put on you, it would be as if you were saying your life is as valuable as the wedding crashers. These are people who sneak other guests out of the party to have their own frivolity, one full of bitter food, muddy water, sour wine, and death. Your life would be as good as dead because the bridegroom will always protect his bride. And if you sit outside of his church, there is no way for him to show you mercy as he would not even recognize you. But as we prayed earlier in the service today, these words, Almighty God, you invite us to trust in you for our salvation. Deal with us not in the severity of your judgment, but in the greatness of your mercy. Whenever we find ourselves outside the wedding feast, soaked in the teachings of false teachers, and find ourselves as the poor, miserable sinner, Jesus wants us to ask for his forgiveness. And he promises to give it. He never divorces himself away from us. Only we can do that. Thanks be to God that he does this incredible thing. Because... I don't want to be on the side of seeing God's righteous anger. And I hope and pray that you do not either. It would be terrible. Rather, the church hopes in the promises and surety of Christ's word, saying he has gone to prepare a room for us. And we gladly await his second coming. Judgment Day for the bride will not be a day of sorrow and tears, He takes those all away. It will be a joyful day for us. Though I can't say the same thing for those who do not wear the wedding garments. As Jesus points out at the end of our parable today, He says that these wedding crashers will be sent out into the utter darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It does not sound pleasing. We do await the day when our Lord will come back to take us into the heavenly wedding feast. But until then, we as the church remain faithful to our wedding vows. But we can't do that, however, by our own strength. Christ sends us his Holy Spirit so that we can engage in creedal faith together. We are to be united as the church through word and through sacrament. If the Christian religion were a man-made thing, it would have faded years ago. But God keeps sending his Holy Spirit to revive the church, to strengthen marriages with children, and to have hands to tend the needy, the lonely, and the oppressed. He calls men into the ministry so that others in the streets can hear the gospel that they are no longer needing to live under the anger of the bridegroom, but live in his good graces of mercy. In our liturgical practices, you can see places where we preach that we wear permanent righteousness of Christ. For example, many baptisms include the participant wearing a white Robe, or receiving a white garment to show that they have been clothed in the garments of Christ the Crucified. Many catechumens on Confirmation Day wear white robes to show that they are still living in their baptismal garment and they are about to confess before all the congregation that they are in unity with the Church. A pastor wears a white robe showing that his words are not from his own authority, but from the authority received from the bridegroom himself. And it is only in that word that the church can find unity and salvation. At a funeral, the body is covered with a white cloth, a pall, that shows that this person, now deceased, is a baptized member of the church awaiting the resurrection. And some of you may have thought, Vicar, you forgot one. What about the bride who wears a white wedding dress on her wedding day? Many traditions revolve around this example, but for the sake of today, it is important to remember one thing. The bride does not dress herself in her own white dress. It is Christ who suffered and died for his wife, who gives her own his unstained, perfect life he possesses, and clothes her in it. We are the recipients of God's great mercy. We are the bride that needs forgiveness every day. That is, every day until we see him face to face at the wedding feast that has no end. Amen. Now may the peace of God fill your hearts with all joy and believing, until we are together with the bridegroom in heaven forever. Amen. You rise confess our faith. the